So we are going to start with the best fun question of the day, which is this whole concept between, I've heard it many, many times. Uh, what is the difference, Wes, between growth hacking and product-led growth? And I hear a lot of like thoughts around it, but I wanted to go directly to the source. And so really, if you could just open up and share, like, what are some of the main differences you see between like, what is the difference between growth hacking and product-led growth? Yeah, let me tell you that like the biggest difference is that growth hacking is right and product led growth is wrong. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> I'm joking. I actually Hello. think. <laughs> let me let me talk about what I actually think is really similar between them first, if you don't mind, and then and yeah, then maybe yeah, go right into right. some of the the differences. So I think both are really based on this concept that conversion value is what drives retention. Value is any sustainable growth engine is built on value. And I think both product-led growth and growth hacking are really about amplifying value, increasing the speed to value, and and continuing to deliver value over time, and and really trying to quantify that value with a North Star metric, particularly in growth hacking. But I think it it probably applies in in product-led growth as well. And so growth hacking, of course, is very much test, learn, improve driven. So you need that growth mindset. But from what I understand about product-led growth, I think it's also a test, learn, and improve. So value delivery is what you're trying to improve. And so the faster you can kind of understand where are the bottlenecks to getting to value and how, you, how can you accelerate value delivery, you're going to be able to drive more long-term growth. And then I'll get into the differences, but I'm, I'm going to quickly go through those. And then, and then I want to invite uh, Ethan in to, to make some comments on it as well. So... I think the biggest difference is that while I never stated it when I coined the term growth hacking, I think it is really more appropriate for B2C. It it really, you know, it's easier in B2C. You have people volume, you have data volume, you can run kind of pure experiments when there's not actually human touch involved with too much. So a lot of times in the B2B space, you're going to have a, a salesperson or customer success, or somebody's going to be touching that prospect on the way to that sale a lot of times. Not always, but, but a lot of times. And so because of the high data volume and the kind of pure digital experience all the way through, running experiments make it easier to be able to quickly test and learn and improve over time. And so that's probably one of the bigger differences in product-led growth is that you have to kind of think in terms of how do I qualify leads based on how they're engaging with the product. And obviously, the more that you can deliver a valuable experience to them, the easier the salesperson's job is going to be. But that would be probably the biggest difference that I would say is that growth hacking is more tailored toward B2C and product-led growth is more tailored toward B2B. Yeah, I guess I would just say that as I understand product-led growth, I look at it as a go-to-market strategy that's embracing product as this driver of acquisition and retention, whereas growth hacking is this data-driven, rapid test-learn approach to growth. I think they're very much connected, but you know, you can say that those are two diverging things in terms of what they do. But when you look at them sort of together, they both really rely on the same thing. As Sean said, it's really about value. We've always looked at when we look at our principles of sustainable growth that we talk about all the time on the Breakout Growth Podcast and on breakoutgrowth.net, we really look at value, as Sean said, as the driver of growth. And when you see that in the context of product-led growth and you see it in the light of growth hacking, I think they are really very much one and the same. Can I ask a clarifying question to you on that, Ethan? Um, sure. So you, in differentiating, you were essentially saying product-led growth is 
really taking it on the words, product-led growth, that, that growth is driven by the product. Do you think that's not the case in growth hacking? No, not at all. I think it's a crucial element of growth hacking. I think growth hacking is all about trying to get your product to absolutely demonstrate and showcase value to the end user. But it also, I think, touches on other elements across the, the whole plane of product marketing and growth. Cool. I just want to make sure that uh, you were on the same page with me there. And if not, I, uh, I was going to set you straight. No, I was going to try to find out why. <laughs> no, that's awesome. So to recap, the similarities you both mentioned, it's both, whether it's product-led growth or growth hacking, the main focus is really just on helping users get to the value of the product faster so it can ultimately grow the business, if I understand correctly. And the main differences you're seeing is growth hacking is more so focused on the B2C space, whereas product-led growth is mostly B2B. Is that a fair assumption and correct? I think it's growth hacking works easier in the B2C space. I never have thought of it as necessarily being constrained to only B2C. And I do think, um, you know, whenever I'm doing presentations and workshops, a lot of times I'm using examples like Slack, obviously, that you start to see almost a consumerization of these enterprises where you have to really effectively serve the end user need. And when you do that, you're able to, to ultimately retain enough end users that you get a nice footprint where, where the, the bigger sale becomes possible, or, or maybe you're monetizing based on just engagement of end users like, uh, like Slack does. And it's, you know, slight difference of, you know, you want to see more of a history of messages or something. But um, the truth is that even like in my experience, the businesses that I worked on did actually cross into B2B. So log me in where I ran marketing for five years. Almost all of our users had some business context that they were using the product in. About 50% of our sales were touch sales through our sales team. And so we were definitely very test-driven, very data-driven. Dropbox, the same thing. You know, it's more of that prosumer, but it is a very high-velocity sale. And then I would, I would say that even, uh, even HubSpot, HubSpot, I think, is a really interesting example because for a long time, I used the example of the website grader as being kind of one of the tactics that's kind of a growth hacking-like tactic that they use. But that, the website grader was really is, I'm not sure they still have it, is really a super creative, clever way of qualifying leads for a sales team still. So it's still somewhat of a sales-led model where I think it's about 2017, HubSpot shifted everything to having a free version of their products. And I actually reached out to Dharmesh Shah in 2017 and said, I love how you guys are approaching freemium. I thought that somebody could do this in this space and it would be a really successful opportunity if they approached it the way that you guys are approaching it. And I've just bought HubSpot stock as a long-term hold. And you know, since that time, it actually... I think it peaked last month at about 900% up from the time where I sent that, that email to him. So I, I do think that this kind of freemium-led approach moves a lot of these B2B opportunities into much more of a, a consumer-like approach to customer acquisition and, and conversion and retention. Totally. So w- with that, Sean, do you have any other stock tips for the audience here? Yeah, yeah that's the only one. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, do you want to keep going on that topic? I could probably talk on that topic the entire time, but uh, you, you might have some other questions up your sleeve that you want to dig into. 
Oh, definitely. I think like the main thing uh, to recap that part is just the bridge. Like there's a lot of overlap with any kind of tactic or strategy that you might approach, whether it's growth hacking or product-led growth. But I think what you're mentioning, like there's the consumeritization of software. Like a lot of B2B companies now are looking and acting and operating a lot more like B2C companies as far as mm-hmm. like how they're onboarding their users. Now mm-hmm. things can get more funky when you get into the product versus a lot of B2C apps that are like completely touchless self-serve, uh, whereas some B2B companies are more like hybrid. And so there's different approaches of how that works from an onboarding process. But I think there's also just like both of them are a process at the end of the day of like figuring out how you can optimize for value. So this has been yeah. uh, really interesting. Yeah, along that topic, just one more sort of example that Ethan and I just came across recently on a project that we're working on together. A company has NDAs, I can't like kind of disclose any names on it, but a company that we're working with has an analytics solution in place that clearly like someone was good on the sales side and convinced them that they should use this analytics solution, but the company did not go far enough in actually getting them to implement it and get value from it. And so they've been paying for this thing and really not using it and really not getting any value from it for, I don't don't know exactly what the period of time is, but it just shows like a sales-led approach. They convinced them, but they never delivered value. Mm -hmm. Somehow they still were able to get them converted, but they now know that they're at high risk of losing this company. And so now they're working really hard to help them get value. But it's, in my opinion, it's kind of a little bit late. They should have had a value-driven approach from the very beginning. Definitely. And I think one of the the common similarities we've both had is like one challenge, at least we've noticed with our audience community is that a lot of companies are like trying to make this transition from sales to product led, as I'm sure you've kind of dealt with on your end as well, as far as like growth hacking, like how do you get a growth hacking process? How do you get buy-in from the different teams as part of this? And so... I'm curious, like, what's your advice for teams and even companies to get bought into it, whether it's like growth hacking or it's making this transition from yeah. sales to product-led? How do you approach that? So, Sean, you mind if I take that one to start? Yeah, and then I'll give the correct answer afterwards. Yeah, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry, Ethan and I have known each other way too long, so we get a little silly, or I do. That's not good. Yeah. <laughs> So we'll, t- we'll chat after, Sean. <laughs> I think getting teams to agree on some fundamentals is really a great starting point. You know, we just talked in depth about the importance of driving end user value. If you can figure out what that value is to the end user and get everyone to buy into it across the organization, I think you have a fighting chance of making that transition well, because then you can start moving up the chain from that foundation of, well, do we all agree that this is how we create value for end users? This is how people experience our product and grow to love it. If we have that, then you can start laddering up from that in terms of looking for a a metric or a method that everyone can agree on to accelerate that value, to get more people experiencing that value. So I think it really starts with agreement. And Sean and I often talk about the North Star metric. I just recently wrote an article about how you can win with OKRs in a North Star metric. And it really starts with that foundation of let's all agree on how value is created and then ladder up from there so that we're we have a shared framework and language for working together cross-functionally to accelerate an outcome. So Ethan, what what do you think? I mean, I think that's a good potential part of the solution, but what do you think is actually the problem and the challenge that people have? When they fail, how are they approaching it? So I think when companies are trying to move from one solution to the other, like you usually have sort of an embedded structure. So you have a sales team, right? And 
they have a set of, you know, they live in a silo where they have silo goals and metrics. Mm-hmm. Your product team has silo goals and metrics and each team, you know, customer success. So I think when they fail, it's because they fail to realize that those silo metrics may not actually be pulling everyone in the same direction. Mm-hmm. So really, you know, you, like when we talk about a North Star metric, it's about getting everyone to pull towards one common goal mm-hmm. that everybody can agree on. And if you base that on the mission, how customers experience value, it's a lot easier to get that agreement. Yeah, I actually think it's even not not just the metrics that they look at, but the just habits that they have of how they've executed for a really long time, not just at that particular company, but in their entire mm-hmm. career, this is how we've always done things. Mm-hmm. And I got this feedback from a lot of frustrated readers of, of Hacking Growth was that they read it, they was like, oh, this completely makes sense. I'm going to go do this in my company. And then four months later, five months later, they're completely frustrated and they just couldn't make it stick. And I think it's because they literally tried to 100% embrace it day one and didn't really kind of think about what they were up against. And so I do agree with you that like one way to go is to get everyone aligned up front. So starting with even like, how do we grow today? Like just having a common understanding of how that growth works today. And then is it perfect or is there potential room for improvement? So trying to kind of nurture a bit of a growth mindset there and then introducing really the, the test learn process. And in addition to those things, like layering in what you said, where, okay, let's align on mission, let's align on a key metric that unifies all of the functions. And if we can get that kind of alignment and why a better approach is going to be really critical for our success, I think that's one good way to approach it. Mm -hmm. The other way, if you want to take a more incremental way, like that is definitely trying to go to 100% pretty fast. I think that's the fastest way to a lot of impact. But if you don't want to kind of take the more radical approach, I do think essentially, you know, focusing on like the unaddressed areas, like speed to value, I think is something that for most organizations that are siloed, marketing is bringing them in the door. And then somebody should be thinking about how do I get them to value? But most people aren't thinking about that. Like sales in a PLG environment, it's like sales is thinking about how do I convince them of what value is going to be here? And then product is in a whole different frame of mind where they're getting their customer responsive. They're getting feedback from customers about what else is needed in the product. They're extending the product roadmap and kind of waiting for the day when they get the product so perfect that they no longer need sales and marketing. And during that whole time, you've got this big void of people who are not actually getting to value very quickly. And so I think that's like a good starting spot is like, let's figure out what's going on there. Let's qualitatively understand why people aren't converting and really getting to a point of value in the product. Even if you have a free trial, even if you have some of the elements, if you don't get them to value, then it's going to be really hard to drive that conversion. And so that's where I think stepping in and saying, what's a set of experiments that we can do there? How did those impact the broader business? Let's use those results to convince people to more uh, holistically embrace this across the organization. Yeah, and just to, just to accentuate that, we've really seen examples in the Breakout Growth podcast where those those silos are a real challenge. I think there mm-hmm. I think it was an interview with Valuer where it was really like the sales process and the customer success process right. were so distinct that and you and I both looked at it and were like, you know, if those guys were talking to those guys, they could actually you know really drive some accelerated improvements here. So. Yeah, it was like just to put the concrete specifics on there, it was like they literally filled out the lead gen form and then hit a dead end. And it was like, somebody will be in touch. 
instead of like, you know, continuing to nurture them with content or give them yeah. some kind of experience. It was just literally like, okay, you're done here. Our salespeople will be in touch with you shortly. Like it's uh, that, that is a very sort of old school approach to things. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you remember the, uh, the specifics there. Cause I think uh, it just drives home how this new thinking on this, like, and a, really the product led approach really can change that mindset and, and really work to connect those different disparate teams. Definitely. So to recap, how to get buy-in for PLG or growth hacking, uh, I'm going to start with what you mentioned, Ethan, like get to those first truths. Like what are those fundamentals that we can all agree on regardless of what strategy we choose? And I'm just thinking back to a couple uh, companies I've seen, like personally make a huge transition, a really big company, and they made it work from the transition from sales at a product that ends. A lot of them, they started identifying like, what are those first principles? Like, yes, people want value faster. It's just like the truth of like Amazon and Jeff Bezos, amazing strategy. It's like, yeah, people want their boxes on their doorstep faster. Believe it or not, they want that and they'll always want that. So I think it's really, it's just like, you can cut the bullshit pretty quickly when you agree on the first principles. And then it's like, okay, now how do we do that? Ah, product like growth or growth hacking, <laughs> like this could right. be an option once you get their buy-in on that fundamental belief. And I, as you were talking to, I'm like, there's two things going on. There's like the pull of the past, which is like, hey, we have our metrics for this quarter to hit. And it's like, we need to generate all these like market quality leads or whatever the metric is. And it's like, but we need product qualified leads or something different. So there's the pull of the past that's always going to potentially be dragging you back in that way. But what you need is the push of the future. So like, what are those first couple of steps that you could take? You mentioned like those small little things that could potentially help us uh, move in that direction. I think the more clear you are on some of those things, um, the easier it's going to be for you to really get people to go in that direction. So brilliant stuff. Yeah, just to build on that, that's like what Ethan and I do a lot is workshops with teams around that upfront alignment and then a game plan of how to go from there. So I sort of learned that the painful way where I actually did go in and sort of embed myself for six months in some organizations. And what I found is that there was about three weeks of honeymoon period where they're really excited that I'm there. And then after those three weeks, the more senior people get busy doing their stuff and they send more and more junior people. And then next thing you know, it's just, it's really run out of steam. And so what I figured is if the honeymoon period is the upfront three weeks, then let's try to do it all in one day. Let's just literally, you know, obviously it's a little different in pandemic times where you can't do it on site and you can't do one full day online and expect people to pay attention that long. But this idea of like just front load, take people through that process where they, you know, especially like when you have exercises that you can help them drive through that collaborative process of finding the common ground and making some decisions, then some training for the specialists who'll actually be executing it. I think it builds that momentum that, that gives it significantly higher chances of success. But I think even without a workshop format, even without outsiders, being able to say, how do I take a step back from the day-to-day -day execution and actually figure out how do we want to do things going forward and, and having a collaborative process for making those key decisions? Yeah, I think if you kind of know that you're trying to make a transition, it makes it a lot easier. So like a system reset, like whether it's a workshop or some moment where you, you like, like Sean said, you step back, you gain some clarity um, is really helpful. If you, you know, you were talking about the challenges of going from sales led to product led, I think while that process may take some time, 
like, I think it does need to be intentional and you do need some moment where you're like, Hey, I think this is the better way to go. Let's all align around what we think is the better way to go. Definitely. And Ethan, you wrote an article recently on the uh, the new B2B growth playbook. And so you shared some really cool observations on just what you've noticed around, you know, what are some of the fastest growing B2B companies doing? So would you mind just like kind of going through and sharing, like, what are some of those big success drivers of today's fastest growing B2B companies? Sure. But I should probably preface this by saying that I wrote this with Sean. Like I, I, was, about take, I was about to take all the credit for it and all the good ideas. But, uh, <laughs> too. but uh, you know, we contributed like, you know, a couple of paragraphs of the paper. So I think we can both speak to this, but um, we drew out five or six success drivers that we really saw were common to the fastest growing B2B companies. And we drew these from our interviews on the Breakout Growth podcast. But a couple of them that I think are really relevant in the world of uh, PLG, the companies that were really driving great success had clearly identified target audiences and they were obsessed on value delivery for all stakeholders. And I know these are themes that we've discussed earlier, but this idea that you know clearly identifying the target o- customers, Templify was a really good mm-hmm. example of that, where they actually discourage companies that aren't the right audiences for them. So when you go through their website, you know, they'll ask you a question like, how big are you? And if you say you're only like, you have 500 employees or less, they'll be like, you know, this is a pretty expensive product. This might not be right for you. And I think when we say they clearly identified target customers, they really, as much as they figured out who weren't their customers and who were, and they said, we know who we can deliver value to. We know where our product is most useful. And we want to make sure that we really over-index on that persona. We want to over-index on that audience. And then when it came to obsessing on value delivery for all the stakeholders, I think probably a good example of that was with two companies that we interviewed in the travel space, which were um, Trip Actions and Lola, which they help companies manage their travel expenses. But these are two companies that do this completely, really putting a ton of focus on the end user. So they built mobile apps for travelers. And they said, let's make the travel experience for business travelers so awesome that it drives growth throughout the organization. It drives adoption through organizations. And I think it's really, they both present really good examples of this mindset of put value first. And uh, especially with uh, trip actions, I think they're really a product-led growth type of experience. Absolutely. And I can totally attest to that, especially with some of the best product-led companies. We notice is like the best ones, they're maniacal about like serving before they sell. And they provide a ton of upfront value before you ever get to that decision. And when you get to that decision, it's usually a no-brainer because they're like, in the instance of like, even you were mentioning, Sean, with Dropbox, it's like, yeah, you uploaded like so many files. Like, you really want to switch? Right, right. <laughs> want to continue once you hit that future limit of that amount of space. And so I think the best ones, they recognize that they have to deliver before they start charging people. So thanks for that example. And so those are two of the ones. Do you want to go through the other four? Or... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Ethan, you've, you've got them. Uh, since you really wrote the article, we'll go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember all of them off the top of my head, but Sean, you probably can help me fill in the blanks. But I think the first one we started with, which I think is not unique to B2B, but we saw it really emphasized in B2B, is the idea of really nailing product market fit. I think that's something, again, when you think about the pr- our principles for sustainable growth, it's the first one we point to is that you really have to have product market fit. If you don't, you know, a good sales team might be able to sell something to someone that doesn't need it, but they probably are not going to be able to sell them a renewal or, the, or an add-on. So you really have to focus on what is the must-have experience and how is that value delivered? That was really a, a starting point. 
And we also really saw how data and metrics were critical in driving B2B growth success. Sean, you want to touch on that one? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think with anything, everyone wants to improve, but if you don't have a deep understanding of what's going on, you're just as likely to actually make things worse when you, <laughs> when you make changes. And so being able to actually focus on, on driving that improvement, sorry. So it starts with understanding, and I would say not just the data side, but the, the qualitative as well. So, so being able to just really have a very good conceptual understanding of the path that someone takes to converting and getting value and how it spreads across the organization. And I think Templify in particular had a really good just understanding of how how they were able to get everyone on kind of a common template across these large enterprises. And then when you understand the system and the things that work well, then you can start to double down on those things that work well and make them work even better. You can start to think about where the real opportunities that things that don't work very well, how can we, can we fix those? And so, yeah, data, I think it starts with, but, it, but it's important also to add in the qualitative side of really trying to understand the why. And then I think when you have those two things, generally the ideas for ways to improve it start to flow pretty quickly. Yeah, and I think you know that actually led into one of the other key learnings that we had, which was that the growth mindset really drives the test learn process. So I think, you know, once you have the data and metrics and the, both the qualitative and quantitative view of things, and you start to look at where are the levers that we can push and pull, putting that into a test learn process is really important. And I think this is what, you know, I think Sean, you were alluding to this earlier, while in B2B, it can be harder sometimes because you may not have the volume of data. What we did find across these companies is that they were finding ways to implement these test-learn approaches regardless. I remember, I think it was Templify, they had this little ad hoc team they called the Crazy Five, and it was so much fun to hear about them. They were saying like, they would go and find the problems in the organization and say, what experiment can we run to help solve this problem? And it wasn't always easy, and they couldn't always get you know the deep data learning that they wanted. But I think just going through the process of thinking of these things from that sort of scientific test-learn process really helped them accelerate growth. Yeah, I think the last of the kind of six key takeaways that I'm, I'm not sure that you you cover just work to drive that cross-functional alignment. Yeah. And um, while it's important in B2C with growth hacking, I think you have a lot more sort of functional roles in a B2B environment where, where you have... Yeah, you've got support, but you have success. So that, like, there can be kind of two different roles there. And then you've got salespeople tied in there. And so probably one of our biggest surprises across these companies was that they didn't tend to have a North Star metric. And you know, a couple of them did. But without a North Star metric, without a, like, a common metric that people are trying to grow, it's really easy to focus just on your siloed metric. And, then, and that creates a lot of friction because like, my conversion rate dropped because you're bringing in crappy leads and it, it just kind of yeah. it starts to turn into a lot of finger pointing versus this this is our footprint of value and this is the role I play in growing that value ultimately helps to to drive that alignment much better and it's just so much more important. And anyone who's worked in that kind of environment, you see tribes develop to, to the point where there's, there's almost like a different sales culture, the sales culture in a company versus the marketing culture versus the product culture can be more defined than even an overall company culture. And that makes it just really hard it, where at the end of the day, there's one customer that's passing through each of these disparate groups. And 
passing through people with different goals and different cultures is just going to have a very fragmented experience. And it's, it's going to limit your ability to drive growth when you're not all on the same page around how do we nurture someone through this and a company through this to, to help them really leverage our solution to its maximum value. Absolutely. And one of the things I'm hearing again and again uh, from both of you, which is great, is like the importance of alignment and Mm -hmm. the overlapping piece between PLG and Growth Hacking Keeps coming up is like obsessing about the value delivery specifically. And so Mm -hmm. I think both of those fit nicely together, whether it's alignment, delivering on that value. But I think the one thing that ties it all together is how you measure that value and that mm-hmm. success. And so as far as like your experience goes, what are some of the things you found that can be an effective way for you to really look at and measure the value exchange? Like, hey, are we helping our users become successful? Because mm-hmm. I think it's so easy nowadays. There's tons and tons of metrics available to you to pick the vanity metrics, the one that's, you know, it might sound good and it's going up and to the right, like everyone wants um, mm-hmm. the right thing that we really need to track. And I think when it comes to understanding that relationship between the user and experiencing value, it's Mm -hmm. so important. So how do you drive home that alignment through measuring what is the the result that people need to have in that company? So Ethan, if you don't mind, I'll take a quick pass. And then uh, I just want to start with one example. So I think um, Amplitude does a really good job of this. Uh, So Amplitude, the data analytics platform, their North Star metric is a weekly learning user metric. And so if you think about that and you think, give an example of that, it was a different company where I said I've joined, Ethan and I have joined a team on a project recently that has an analytics platform in place that's completely not being used. So if they were analyzing their weekly learning users, then they would know that that number is offline company. No one's even looking at the product, let alone learning from the product. And so they're probably managing in a more traditional way, which might be MRR, monthly recurring revenue. That's a really normal SaaS metric that shows our retained customers. It feels right, but MRR is a function of value delivered. And so if you don't have learners on the platform, and so that's like Amplitude literally approaches it to someone comes in, they've discovered something. How do I leverage that person to have them share their discovery, bring other people in who are learning from that. They start to understand their engine on that level versus these guys are contributing MRR. They haven't used the product yet. Hopefully they don't realize they're getting zero value from it is, uh, you know, and and more often than not, the company doesn't even realize that the customer's not getting any value from it. They just, they don't even pay attention to that. As long as that MRR number looks good, they're fine. So I, I think it does start with what is the purpose of our product? What is the mission of our business? And how can we quantify the footprint over time of value that we're delivering from something that relates more to the engagement of the people who who truly use the product? So, Ethan, anything you would add to that? No, I think that, especially on the quantitative side, I think that really captures it. On the qualitative side, I've always found the uh, Sean's famous question about product market fit to be really useful uh, because it starts to put you in front of the customer and hearing what they're saying and how they're experiencing the product or service you're providing. So I've always thought that that was another useful way to uh, sort of gain both a qualitative and quantitative look at at those things. So can you actually tell them what the question is? They may not know my famous question. It may not be as famous as you think. Yeah, sorry. So Sean Sean asked the question, if your product were to go away tomorrow, would you be very disappointed, somewhat disappointed, or not disappointed at all? And the people who say very disappointed, 
you know, those are people who are having the must have experience. So Sean, you want to add to that? I mean, I don't yeah, know. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's really about drilling into why would they be very disappointed without the product? What is the primary benefit that they get? And then thinking about what's the experience they need to have with the product to experience that benefit. And how do I quantify the frequency with which they are having that experience? And so the first time they experience it is kind of that aha moment. And that's really critical for, for converting and retaining them in the first place. But if they only experience it once, then you're not doing a very good job. So if you can get them coming back on a regular basis and, and experiencing that benefit, you will very likely retain them long-term. And for any SaaS business, like it, it feels like product-led growth is, is particularly focused on SaaS businesses. And yeah. for SaaS businesses or consumer businesses, whatever business you're looking at, Long-term customer retention is by far the number one most important thing for your ability to grow sustainably over time. And long-term customer retention is directly a function of, am I delivering ongoing value to that customer? Absolutely. And I love that example with Amplitude too, like the weekly learning user. For I remember I had, uh, we had Justin, the VP of product on the product at Summit and his analogy of like, understand which game you're playing as a business. And for Amplitude, it's definitely like, they're playing the game of productivity. They want people to make better decisions mm-hmm. and making sure that the, the vision and the game that you're playing as a business aligns with that metric is so important because it's like that forcing function, like you mentioned, that when we understand the value and how our business, our products, and everything contributes together, I can make just a powerful alignment across the board. And so I want to make sure we have time for QA. Yeah, I'll I'll take a, a quick pass at it. You know, a lot of times it doesn't require any budget at all. You know, a lot of times you have some level of organic growth that's happening. And so I mean, obviously, like uh, you said, people as well. So and I guess that requires some budget. So if you have no people, good luck running a business. But as soon as you have like at least a couple of people, then it starts with you know, understanding where that growth engine is breaking down and being able to come up with ideas of how can I fix that? So almost always the first place that I focus on any business is, is on the conversion funnel and improvements in the conversion funnel are amplifiers for every dollar that you are spending. And you know, for your organic sources of new customers, it's going to amplify those. And then ultimately, so then the budget question, my goal is always to, and it sounds kind of counterintuitive, but my goal is always to figure out what's the biggest budget I can possibly have within an acceptable payback window. So if I set that payback window to three months, So I need to get all of that money back within three months and I figure out how to spend $10 million in those three months. It's very easy to get additional funding if you can bring those proof that you can do that. And so, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, I wouldn't think that the barrier to getting started is a budget. A lot of times it can actually end up helping you get a lot more from your budget. And then on the other side, if you can ultimately show a return on investment. And of course, there's a lot of companies that, drive growth entirely. So like Dropbox, for example, we essentially spent nothing on paid customer acquisition. We clearly had a free product that cost a lot of money to give away for free because we had space, you know, free space that came with it. But a kind of user get user engine helped to drive that business to a billion dollar revenue run rate faster than any SaaS business before it. And that was without a specific outbound marketing budget at all. Any other thoughts from 
Ethan or, or Wes are that, that covers it. <laughs> Those are that question. So I, I a quick answer and then I ran it on and on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the next question, and this is particular to PLG, but I think it could apply to growth too, is that there's this concept that, you know, you have to have freemium or free trial to actually run a good growth process. And if you're enterprise, it might be impossible or hard. What are your thoughts around that? Is it possible, first of all, if you don't have a free trial freemium to run a growth process? And second is, how do you go about doing that? As far as like starting with that uh, product like growth strategy, no, you don't have to have a free trial premium product to make it work. Ideally, like you have something free that people can easily get their feet wet and figure out how to use. But what we see a lot of companies do, even if you are completely sales led, let's say you have a demo request and you just look at like the customer onboarding process, just start there. Like how can you, if let's say you have a CSM, they go through like three or four calls for every customer. Maybe uh, you could start looking at that and say, you know, in that call, that first one, maybe we could just like guide people through the product and they could figure that stuff out on their own. It would be a lot less handholding from our end. So you could always start there and see, okay, how could we automate this? How could we, you know, take those three calls or three hours of customer onboarding and turn it into something that's a lot less? And from the, the quick win perspective, that's actually relatively easy for you to do. And it's something that will prove results, like Sean was mentioning about like, okay, let's let's get those results in three months. Let's get the wheels moving. And then you can move and take bigger swings into something like a free trial or like a freemium model. So absolutely great question. You can start small and work your way up. Great response. So just moving along, there's another question. And this could be probably more for Ethan and Sean around. What are some mistakes you've seen freemium companies make that made them go out of business? <laughs> so you've interviewed a ton of companies for the Breakout Growth Podcast. And Wes, you can chime in as well. But what are some mistakes you've seen around freemium businesses that have really made them go bankrupt? I'm going to let Ethan answer this one, but I want to say one thing about why we wouldn't have those guys on the Breakout Growth Podcast (laughs) is that it's the fastest growing companies in the world, not the fastest dying companies. So um, we probably haven't interviewed them on our podcast. But Ethan, do you have examples of any uh, freemium? I mean, there's lots of freemium businesses that have clearly gone out of business. I can't think of a specific company that went out of business and I had the, the exact same thought, Sean, that we, <laughs> we, we wouldn't be interviewing them, unfortunately, on the podcast to give you that example. But one thing, you know, there are a couple things that I think are challenges with freemium. Sean's got a lot more hands-on experience with freemium that he can speak to, but, you know, freemium is not free from the perspective of there is a lot of overhead in having thousands, if not millions of free users on your system. Even if it doesn't cost a lot per user, the cost in terms of servicing and providing you know, customer support, those can really add, add up. So I think when people think about freemium, they don't always think about the full sort of scope of what will be involved in running that premium product. And it's certainly easy to, um, if, I think probably the number one killer for freemium companies is if you give so much away for free that there's just no reason for people to upgrade to paid, and then you just have no revenue loop to drive success. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's such an art to be successful with freemium that it's... Uh you're really building an economic model that has to work. And so, as Ethan said, if you make the free version so valuable that there's no differentiation in the premium version, then you're pure cost with no revenue. That doesn't work. And then, but I see the other way as well. I'm going to make the premium version really, really good. I'm going to make the free version awful. And why have a free version if you're you're going to do that? Because your free version essentially is saying, look how bad we are at product. Now try our premium product. Like it's, (laughs) it's, it's essentially 
when for freemium to really work well, you need a really good free product that is so good that people talk about it. People want to share it with other people. And so that you get this referral loop that's really strong. And so every freemium business I've worked on, the, by far the majority of users come in through just pure word of mouth. Even Dropbox, it has these like natural viral loops in the product. It's just people who love the product talking about it. And then you have to have a premium product that is incrementally good enough that people want to upgrade to it. Not necessarily everyone, but enough people that you essentially are, you, you think about it in cohorts of like 100 people. So for every 100 people I acquire, my acquisition cost and my cost of servicing those people, some of them, including the cost of servicing the ones who upgrade to premium, how much revenue am I generating from the 2% or the 4% or the 10% that upgrade to the premium version? And is that amount higher than my collective cost of, of acquiring that cohort of 100 people? And if it is, and you aggressively try to scale that, you're going to go out of business fast. And so what you need to be able to do is figure out... So, so for example, at LogMeIn, when we decided we wanted to do the freemium business, we initially our economics didn't work for it. So initially we, we had architected the solution so that every single remote connection went through our data center on, in an ongoing way when you were doing a remote control session. And that costed us $8 per user per year. And so we, we had over 100 million users by the time I left LogMeIn. So that would be $800 million in costs just for those free users. That would not have been viable so once we made the decision to have a freemium business, then we gave the engineers the huge challenge of figuring out how do you get a cost structure that supports that? And then they pioneered a model of using our data center to broker the connection and then rolling it over to a peer-to-peer connection seamlessly. So it was still really easy for the user, but that took our cost down to $0.08 cents per user per year instead of $8.00. And we were able to, to scale the business with that model. So it's definitely really hard to pull off freemium, but it, I think it's a, it's a really powerful model when it works. Just one thing I, I thought I would mention is uh, we actually just uh, a couple of days ago did an interview for the Breakout Growth Podcast with former head of product for uh, Canva. And there was a really good discussion that Sean had with um, Georgia on freemium. And, and I think uh, for anyone who's watching, uh, that should come out, I guess, next week. And I think yeah. um, there'll be some good insights from that as well. All right. Well, I think that's all we have time. I want to be mindful of Ethan, Sean, and Wes's time. I know there's a ton of questions that are coming in, and I do apologize because we do we have run out of time. First of all, thank you, Sean, to Ethan, and to Wes for, for taking the time. I know that everybody here is, is busy, and they're trying to grow their own perspective practices and also the company. So if you can just comment in below thank, to thank Sean, Ethan, and, and Wes for the time, and obviously my time as well, right? Especially <laughs> <laughs> your time. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> That's why you're so important. One thought, if there are some questions there, Ethan and I are both in the product-led growth Slack channel. And so right. we're happy to, to jump in and try to answer in the Slack channel any questions awesome. that didn't get answered today. So if there's awesome. a million of them, maybe we won't be able to. But if it's enough that uh, if it's a small enough number that we can we can do it without putting too many hours of time into it, we're, we're happy to jump in and try to provide additional answers. 
That is so sweet. Thank you so much. We actually have uh, Amy Slack channel there. So you can just <laughs> join there and uh, you can drop your question. Join the PLG Slack for free. Like you can just, it's there, it's available and we want to invite you. Sean is there and Ethan is there. And obviously Wes and I are there. So thank you so much. We appreciate uh, everything you guys for showing up here. That's it for now. It's been really fun. Thanks. Thank you. It's been awesome. Yes, this has been a blast. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers.